Hi everyone, welcome to Pink Shade, episode two. I'm Erin Martin and I'm here to talk to you about all the shows we're addicted to, plus the reality stars we love, even when we're giving them the side eye. I dish on everything from Real Housewives to TLC shows, Lifetime, uh, A&E, Reels, you name it. We're going to get into it here on the show. This week, we're going to focus on Housewives, and of course, we're going to continue discussion on the Kobu, which is the first cult we're exploring. That'll be in the second half of the show today. But first, I want to talk about Real Housewives of New Jersey and drum roll, dun, 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 90 Day Fiance. Oh my gosh. Are you guys not addicted to 90 Day Fiance? If you just started watching recently and you've binged it, congratulations for coming on board. And if you've been watching it for all the years it's been on, what is it now? Four years? Maybe I'm exaggerating. Three? I don't know. It feels like I kind of don't remember a time when 90 Day Fiancé wasn't in my life. That's how that's how long it feels to me now, but that's possibly just because I'm so obsessed with this show. There are some amazing podcasts out there that cover 90 Day Fiancé. Jody's podcast on all platforms, Welcome to Reality TV, is insanely good and so sharp and so spot on snarky and hilarious. You guys have to check her podcast out. Welcome to Reality TV. She does recaps of 90 Day Fiance every single week as well as a million other shows and has really cool topics as bonus episodes as well. So head over there and give Jody some love. I was on her podcast uh, about a month ago and she's also been just amazingly helpful in, in answering my just trivial and stupid questions about podcasting. And by the way, you guys, if you're back for episode two, and that means probably you've listened to episode one, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Getting that first podcast up took me a very long time, and it was pretty, pretty janky, but I hope you enjoyed it. I promise these will get better as I learn what I'm doing. Learning to put this audio together is a challenge for me. So even if I'm getting music to fade in and out and only having a couple of crazy pops and stops along the way, that's a big win. I'm not asking you to feel bad for me. Dang, you're listening to me right now. So I'll stop apologizing. But I hope you like the content, and I really want to hear from you. So join the Pink Shade Facebook group. There's been a little bit of confusion on that, so let me be clear. The Facebook group is closed, and it's called Pink Shade with Aaron Martin. You do have to search the whole name in Facebook to find it, probably because there's a lot of things named pink out there. Pink Shade with Aaron Martin. Just send me a request, and I will let you in right away, like I said before, unless you're Slade Smiley or Brooks Ayers. Uh, other than that, you know, I'll let you in. It's cool with me. Come on in. The water's great. And we have, you know, just a few of us so far, but we're already talking and having fun. And, you know, you can post things there. We can chat. It's like texting your best girlfriends and boyfriends, whoever's in there. Uh, in the middle of the night, you know, you can just kind of, Get down and dirty about all the stuff that you're obsessed with because we're your people. We're here. We're all out here. I can't talk to my husband about this stuff. He doesn't want to hear me mention one more word about 90 Day Fiance, I swear. I I bring it up at the dinner table. I talk about it every minute that I can. I'm podcasting about it. I'm writing recaps about it on realitytea.com. Check out my recaps there. And... I'm talking about it on the Jenny McCarthy show on Sirius XM every week because Jenny's in now too. I mean, we're texting about it. Lisser, her friend is on board. She's been on board for a while. She's the one who convinced a lot of you who listen to Jenny's show to watch it because she is just as in deep with it as me. I mean, we're following these people on Instagram. We're just, ugh. It just rolling around in the mud of 90 Day Fiance. But anyway, I'll stop gushing about that because we're going to back up 
and we are going to begin with housewives first. So let's get started on that. So I want to start with Real Housewives of New Jersey. And since this podcast is coming out before this week's airing, we're going to talk about last week's episode, which for me felt like the return of Teresa. I mean, I I almost stood up and clapped when I saw what she did last week. And it's not because I approve of throwing stemware in restaurants at brick walls, but it's because the real Teresa stood up. That's who she is. This whole namaste bullshit that she's been doing for the past two seasons. And I'm reformed now and I'm all about the peace and love. And I just want to be, you know, my family to be okay. And my daughters are the most important. And I love Joe. She's like, you know what? I kind of hate Joe and I kind of hate you bitches. And I'm going to throw shit. And that's who Teresa is, and that's who we've been missing. And again, I have to be clear. When I say I love these chicks, I would never probably be friends with any of them in real life. Maybe with the exception of Kelly Dodd, who's kind of freaking awesome. But they are great housewives for a reason. And Teresa is the show, lover or hater, if you forgive her for her felonies or not, or if you're one of the people who thinks she's done her time and it's a clean slate. I'm kind of more on that side. But anyway, no matter what your feelings are about her and her sins, she is a great housewife when she is playing herself when she is being her true self and she hasn't been her true self in quite a while. Do you guys agree with that? I mean, it's almost been insufferable watching New Jersey these past couple of years. It's been her going to prison, Joe going to prison, everyone just talking about their problems and is she okay and her not wanting to get involved in any drama And I understand why Bravo waited for her to get out of prison to film this, or last year's season rather, not this year's, because they needed her. That whole year they had the twins on and then Amber and that, oh, God awful mess of a cast they had for a couple of seasons. It just didn't work. Now that Danielle's back, who is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And now that Teresa is back to the real her, man, it just couldn't be better for me. New Jersey's ratings are at about 1.8 million, and that is tied with the Real Housewives of Orange County on their finale and reunion nights. People have the, uh, people are under the illusion, delusion? What's the word? Hmm. Anyway. They believe that New Jersey's numbers are low, that they don't get the ratings that the other franchises get, and that's actually not true. I looked it up, and episode for episode, they are matching OC and just behind Atlanta right now. Atlanta's always around two. Sometimes it it skyrockets even higher than that because Atlanta just it just brings in the viewers. It's such a powerhouse city. It's such a powerhouse franchise for good reason. But New Jersey is too. New Jersey is no joke. I mean, they've been around for a long time. And true confession, that used to be, in the early days, my very favorite city of all the housewives. Even above New York and above OC. Um, I just found something fascinating about it. And I maybe it's from being out in that area. And I've spent my summers at the Jersey Shore. And... I have a lot of family in Massachusetts who I love dearly and, you know, they sound kind of like that and they live kind of like that a little bit. Not, not like the housewives, but you know, the feeling, the feeling is there and it just felt like home to me. And I really loved how they have the ancillary characters, the Rosies and the Kathies who came on and they always involve their families. I mean, No other franchise has involved their immediate family and extended family to the extent that New Jersey has over the years, for good and for bad, because sometimes that has blown up in their faces. 
And also remember how they were all like weirdly related at one point. I mean, everyone was a sister-in-law or married to someone's brother or they were actual sisters. It was like, uh, it was like insane. But I liked that. And I think we're kind of getting back to that feeling now. I mean, we do have the sisters-in-law still on there. Now it's different from, from season one where it was Dina and Caroline. Now it's been Teresa and Melissa forever. I like that they're not feuding this year. What do you guys think about that? Do you like them feuding or not feuding? I personally like them not feuding. I like them silently hating each other, but not really doing it on camera for us every week because that got so annoying after a while. I just couldn't take it anymore. You know that they resent the hell out of each other, though, still. I mean, you see the little jabs. You see the you're not a real Gorga, blah, blah, blah. Teresa does that to Melissa. Yeah, whatever. But, you know, they're just they're playing the game. And Melissa's only meal ticket is being nice to Teresa at this point. And I think her spidey senses are telling her that the real Teresa is back as well. And there's always something a little fake or maybe a lot fake about Melissa that I just can't put my finger on. I mean, this is the main comment about her out there. And I write the recaps for New Jersey this year on Reality Tea, so check those out too. They haven't been getting as many comments this season. I think people are just so sick of the last couple of years. They're not back on board. And I'm here to say get back on board. This train is leaving the station. As of last week, it is heating up. It's fantastic. But the comments, getting back to that, are, are often about Melissa just being kind of strange. Like no one can figure her out. And I still feel the same way too. You know, after all of these years seeing her, it's like, who are you really? Were you that weird pop star wannabe back in the day when Joe was building you the studio, the sound studio in your basement? Are you the person who uh, stole Joe away from his family? Are you the Teresa, you know, the the snake in the grass that's coming for Teresa, I should say, that, that communicated with Danielle before season two, who really tried for a spot on the show behind her sister in law's back? If we're gonna remember all the way back to season two, the reunion at which Teresa lunged across the stage to the other couch to physically attack Danielle and pushed Andy Cohen so hard he fell back into his chair, which I could just replay a thousand times on YouTube. Go check it out right now if you just want to have a good hearty laugh at your desk. If you forget what that looked like, just go remind yourself because that shit was hilarious. But anyway, The remark that Danielle made to her was about her nephew that she hadn't met yet. That was little Joey. That was Melissa and Joe Gorga's baby Joey. And Danielle only had that intel that Teresa hadn't visited her nephew yet because she was communicating online with Melissa. Now, if you notice this season, Melissa keeps saying on interviews, in her talking heads on the, on the actual show, and in outside press, on radio shows, magazines, she keeps saying, I never met Danielle until this year. Oh, she's such a different person than I heard about. She's just wonderful. We're so close. We're besties. We're going to go get married. She's going to become bisexual again. All right, I'm exaggerating. But Melissa is lying. I'm going to repeat that. Melissa is lying. She totally met Danielle before this season. She is the one who instigated all of that crap. And the fact that Danielle isn't more angry at Melissa for the shit that she stirred up between her and Teresa, not just on that stage, but for a long time afterwards, and is now lying about even knowing her, that's kind of shocking to me. If you want to do some deep diving on Google, look back specifically at that reunion moment and listen to what Danielle says and put the pieces together. 
There is speculation out there forever that Melissa had her hand in the show. She was dying to get on. She even compared herself to Teresa, saying that she was the hotter family member, and she didn't understand why her sister, who was dumber and uglier than her, got on the show first. Ouch. But now they're getting along. Now they're allies. And weirdly enough, Danielle is too. The question is, is it fake? Is it real? Is it a little bit of both? Are they all just doing it for a paycheck? I mean, I think the answer is yes to that last question. They're all doing it for a paycheck, especially Teresa. That and writing, in air quotes, writing her books, her memoirs. And did you read about Teresa wanting to write fictional novels next? Oh my God, I don't even know what to say to that. I feel like the the world sometimes tilts on its axis a little bit when I hear news like that, like does not compute or like it's a glitch in the matrix. Teresa Giudice, 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 however the frick you pronounce her name. The fact that she's talking about, yeah, I want to write novels next when we all know for a fact the woman who doesn't know how to pronounce cumin or ingredients or even put a blog together for Bravo, is not writing any of these books. Of course she has a co-writer or a ghost writer. I think her writer is actually named on the books with her, so she's somewhat transparent. But she's just too much sometimes. I mean, I kind of love her for how crazy out there she is, though, too. She just she, she doesn't get it. She is definitely going to divorce Joe also. In my mind, she's setting herself up for divorcing him. She has been doing press before the season started and since, really backtracking on her old stance of family is forever, divorce is not an option. You know, you don't hear her saying those things anymore. And on the show, she's saying, she's admitting how resentful she is of him. My question is always, how much did she know? Did she really not know anything she was signing? I highly doubt that. I mean, I don't think she asked a lot of questions, but I would equate her to Carmela Soprano. If you guys watch The Sopranos, and I hope some of you did, I hope I'm not alone out there. I mean, I know that a billion of us have at this point, right? It's almost like a rite of passage to every other TV show that's come out since. Every other fantastic series, at least. But anyway, Carmela Soprano, the wife of Tony Soprano, her role on that show, and of course these were fictional characters, but her role was to be as in the dark as she could be, but still know enough to make some smart moves. She didn't want to know all the dirty dealings of her husband. She was happy to spend his money, but she knew enough to keep her own head above water when push came to shove. I feel like that is probably where Teresa was in this whole felony deal, too. You can't tell me that she didn't know her husband was signing fake contracts for fake employees, was taking out loans on fake properties, and just the whole, I mean, we could deep dive on this for a whole episode, everything that they were charged with. We don't need to go back there. But anyway, you, you can't be married to someone and literally know nothing. I mean, I'll admit, there's a lot of stuff I don't know that I probably would sign because I trust my husband. And if you said, hey, you know, we're going to, so we're refinancing our mortgage or something, and here's the paperwork, I wouldn't get a lawyer and go over it before I signed it. We would have a discussion, though, and it would probably be pretty easy to answer my questions. Unless Joe was just demanding that she know nothing and he was never telling her anything on purpose, and I don't think he's that smart then Teresa definitely knew at least a little bit. So yeah, she can, she can resent him for the majority of it. I will give her that. But she can't blame him for the entire thing. She can't cry foul when she was in that marriage and in those business partnerships, even if by name only. 
And so I think she's got to take stock of that. Doesn't matter though, because housewives, Teresa is back. She is ready to form a posse and take it to Kim D this week. And I am in. Well, it's time to move on to our favorite, mine and yours, I hope, 90 Day Fiance. What a shit show. Okay, I am literally minutes after the show ended, right now. It is Sunday night. I just finished my recap for Reality Tea, and if you want to read all of my thoughts, you can read all 2,800 words that I've written and just submitted to Reality Tea. It'll be on the website from uh, Monday morning until forever, basically. And I have a lot of feelings about this year's cast. I will say, number one, this season is much better than last. And I think that's because everyone is so horrific. I don't know who to root for least. It's like, who do I hate the most? Hmm. You know, in... In the whole scheme of things, I guess it would be Nicole most of the time, but then Evelyn is the front runner some episodes because I absolutely hate her. And then when you know it, Luis, he starts being the immature asshole he is, and suddenly he's on my shit list right at the top. And of course we have David, not David in New Hampshire, who is just as smug as Evelyn and just as hateable sometimes. No, I'm talking about the no bots to his name, one Chris away from homelessness and disaster, Ty slash Kentucky David, who's had gastric bypass and it doesn't seem to be working. Yeah, I said it. He's gained a whole nother David since the show started. Have you guys noticed this? Am I the only one? No hate for weight gain, please. We've all been there. But I think he envisions himself as the hot 48-year-old who is maybe getting a revenge wife on his wife that divorced him, probably for good reason, because he seems to have a major drinking problem and absolutely no motivation or responsibility over his own life, as evidenced by having to have a handler in Chris. Also, side note, how did Chris score such a fab wife like Nikki? She is gorgeous. I mean, she single-handedly brings the entire show up one whole beauty point, right? Because she is the only beautiful one on the show, basically. I mean, Evelyn thinks she is, but she's so awful that I can't even, I can't even look at her physically and be anything but ill. Nikki's beautiful. She says it like it is. She seems to kind of secretly hate Chris or maybe even not so secretly, yet she allows him to completely enable his loser friend David to make all of these terrible decisions. I want to know what dirt David has on Chris. I mean, you guys, it has to be something. He has to have something on him. What does he have a P tape on him? And that business they're in together, look it up online. It's called Fantasy Thailand. Google is your friend on this one because they do have a business that exists. And when I say they, okay, Chris has the business. He's obviously the brains and the money behind everything. But David and Annie are involved in it as well. Also, another little piece of dirt. Antonio, Nikki's awesome brother, who is like the hero of last episode, he is all over social media claiming that Annie was a hooker in Thailand and that David didn't meet her at a karaoke bar like he says he did. He met her because she was his prostitute. And that explains things a little bit more for me because every time I see Annie, I want to scream just like the rest of the planet, girl, you in danger. Run. But if she is in a compromising position herself, and she we know she is because she's poor and she wants to support her family, but if they met in under, let's call them, not so palatable circumstances, 
then maybe David, as broke and losery as he is, is her best shot at a better life? I don't know. It is just so disgusting. And then next week's previews with his kids and how he talks to his daughter. I love that we saw a clip of that daughter throwing water in David's face all over his weird prison scrubs that he wears everywhere with his gold jewelry that he obviously got Chris to buy him. And his kids seem like they know the real him, of course, who's probably been a deadbeat their entire lives. And Annie gets to witness it all. And you know what? She probably still won't leave him. In fact, I won't spoil it for you guys, but I do know who gets married and who doesn't. And if you do a little digging around online, you will know too. I actually encourage you not to look. And of course, that's the worst thing you can tell someone, right? So <laughs> if somebody told me that, I'd look immediately. But I almost wish I didn't know because I still want things to turn out differently for some of them. But we'll just leave it at that for now. I am going to spend the rest of this segment ranting about Luis. I could say a lot about all of them. I mean, Evelyn and David in New Hampshire, obviously, quick sidebar there. The whole sex thing that they can't talk about, how weird is that? I don't even know where to begin. Her as an 18-year-old, not even knowing how things work, is one thing. But then David as a 27-year-old, not even being willing to talk about intimacy when he's getting married, oh, their wedding night is going to be fantastic. Fireworks galore. Mm-hmm. I picture them both holding themselves, rocking, sobbing, fully clothed in twin beds. I don't know. It's going to be ridiculous. And I only wish TLC cameras were allowed in there to, to, for us to see it. Of course, we'll just have to dream about it. Anyway, I'm going to get back to Luis because... I am just going to come out and say it, and you will read this in my Reality Tea recap if you go over there. I hate him. I now fully hate him. I feel a personal rage toward him that I used to think I only reserved for people like Nicole. He is the worst in so many ways. Molly is not too far behind in how I feel because, and I mean hating her too, because she is enabling this. And when there are children involved, like hers are, and this is probably why I hate Nicole too, because she's involving her child, it's a whole different scenario. When people are messing up their own lives on 90 Day Fiancé, you know, we can laugh and we can make fun of them and we can just be glad that we're not them. Thank God. It makes me feel so much better watching this show. Doesn't it make you feel like you're winning at everything? But Molly, what she's doing to Olivia and Kensley by bringing this stranger into her home and then allowing him to talk so inappropriately to her older teenage daughter about sex, number one, and number two, to act the way he does toward Kensley, where he was mimicking her back to her face tonight and then encouraging her to be bad and act out and break things because he just wants to rebel against Molly, his mom, because she he basically is her third child right now. She adopted a bartender from the Dominican Republic to be her third child and who will sleep with her when he's not making it rain with her ones at the local strip joint off the freeway. I cannot believe him. Something about him sends alarm bells all up and down my spine. It's his grin. It's that shit-eating grin he wears. It's the way he cavalierly talks about her kids to the cameras, knowing full well that Molly is going to see this later on, where he says they're awful. He doesn't want to deal with them. And you know what? He's entitled to all of those feelings because Molly did force him into a position that is impossible. And he is dealing with a surly teenager, as she should be, and a confused, precocious young girl who told him straight up, you're not my daddy. Because P.S. Luis, you're not. So quit pulling your Darth Vader, I am your father now, on Kensley. Quit pulling your, let's talk about you and your boyfriend fucking to Olivia. How inappropriate was that? And quit pulling the card on Molly 
saying, I can just go home again. If you wanted to go home again, you would. If you wanted to stay working at that resort, you wouldn't have told every woman who came in there, I'm going to make you my wife. Molly just called your bluff and said, okay, and now you're in, where are you? Georgia, right? They're in Atlanta. And you are the houseboy, and you have to pooper scoop up all the dog shit, and you have to watch the kids, and that's what you signed up for. And Molly, you're a piece of shit for doing this to your kids, and Luis, you're a piece of shit for staying in it. I hope Molly kicks you out. In the previews, they show that happening. However, something tells me that's not going to stick because she is in way too deep emotionally. She's so needy with him. And I'm just sad for those girls. I want to do an intervention. Luis, you suck. 90 Day Fiance, I love you. As much as I can get riled up about everyone on this show, please don't ever go away. TLC, this is gold. Well, in tribute to Evelyn and David and Evelyn's family and her family band in New Hampshire, let's go ahead and talk about cults because I know a cult member when I see one and Evelyn, your family is in a cult. You heard it here first. I can see it in their eyes. I can see it in Jacqueline's zombie-like behavior, especially during that awkward sex talk this week. And you know, it takes one to know one. And like I told you in episode one, I come from a background of cults and specifically the Kobu, which I introduced in episode one. So go back and listen to that if you haven't yet, or I'm going to give you a brief rundown of what the Kobu is in this last segment again today in more detail. I just briefly introduced it in our last episode of Pink Shade. And today it's hard to know where to start. So I thought, Let me just start with the beginning of who this group was, who Stuart Trail was, why people were attracted to it, and what a day in the life of a Kobu member was really like. Because as you know, if you've listened to episode one, my parents were a part of this cult. I was born into it and we left just before I was four years old. So I didn't grow up in it. But I have a lot of memories, and I grew up with ex-cult members, so we talked about it a lot. I just interviewed my mom for two hours, and she gave me so much information, things that I never thought to ask her about before, and I'm just going to get sentimental or gushy for a moment and say that it's kind of a gift of this podcast that I get to really talk to my mom about who she was back then. And why a group like this was so attractive to her. I find that being obsessed with cults like I am and watching every documentary, every program, everything out there, reading as much as I can, that it's often a misnomer to say, or maybe just a a gross generalization to say that everyone who joins a cult is gullible or stupid or misled immediately. Sometimes, and in my mom's case, and my dad's too, it's because they're searching for something deeper that the world at large, or at least their experience of the world, hasn't offered them. Now, in the time period where my parents came of age, they were deep into the hippie moment and the hippie movement, but they were both seeking God, I'll say. Don't worry. We're not going to get preachy here, but that's what they were looking for. They were looking for something that they weren't offered in their upbringing, something more than a formal religion was offering them. Enter Stuart Trail. Stuart began his group called the Forever Family in the early 70s, and he quickly realized that that name was too woo-woo, too hippy-dippy for people to take seriously. Also, he hadn't incorporated the organization yet, so he renamed it a little bit later in the early 70s to the Church of Bible Understanding, which it has been known by ever since, the Kobu. And 
my parents were there during this transition time and they saw that as even more legitimate reason why this group was on the up and up because it was getting incorporated. It was becoming a real church. My mom tells me they all thought it was this great move that Stuart made and they didn't realize that it was truly a business move on his part to make their organization tax exempt, just like we see in Scientology, so that he could start making serious money. Now, the main way the Kobu earned money was through the Christian Brothers carpet cleaning business that he started up. He had a background as a car, as a, you know, in carpet cleaning, in vacuum repair, which that was his illustrious past. Although he wasn't a dumb guy, he went to Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, and he was the son of a Presbyterian minister. In fact, something tells me that most of what he did with this cult was in retaliation toward his very strict father, but that's just my little armchair psychology degree coming into play. Anyway, he, um, he started this business, which became hugely successful and earned the group tons of money because he could use the Kobu members as basically slave labor. I read one article out there that said they earned as little as a dollar a day and they worked for about 16 hours a day. Now, my mom corroborates that story telling me that my dad and the other guys were truly out there for 16 hours a day, cleaning carpets, handing out pamphlets witnessing to the poor, unsuspecting landlords and tenants of buildings who are getting their carpets cleaned. If you want to see a hilarious spoof on this actual organization, watch that Seinfeld episode where George hires the Sunshine Carpet Cleaning Company to come over and clean his carpets for 25 bucks. And Jerry and Kramer warn him that it's a cult. That was all based on the Kobu. And yeah, we lived in Manhattan, and that was really happening. And it's a hilarious episode because the Sunshine Carpet Cleaning refuses to witness to George or try to save him because they see him as a lost cause, and he's desperately trying to be recruited by this cult to prove that he's worthy. That was all based on the Kobu. They actually edged out their competition, especially in the city, because they had little or no overhead labor costs because the members of the cult were brainwashed into working for almost no money and for long, long, long hours. And so they could charge these really competitive rates and they took over the island and the boroughs. Um, the Kobu was basically situated in Allentown, Baltimore, Harrisburg, and Manhattan during its supreme reign in the 70s and the 80s. And like I said in episode one, Stuart Trail lives today in Florida. He's in Fort Lauderdale, and he's down there with his four planes and his compound, living on the backs of all of the people who he made money from, using, again, as slave labor. My parents were involved in that. And my mom says that Everything was communal. It was truly communal. And I remember that too. In fact, I'm an only child, but I didn't realize I was truly an only child until we left when I was almost four. I remember when my mom and dad and I lived in our first home together, which was a trailer, all we could afford when we left the group. And I loved that little trailer. But I thought, it's just us, it's just two adults and a kid. And then we got a cat, thank goodness. But the communal living was truly everyone together all of the time. It wasn't like you see on My Five Wives, which I recapped ages ago, where everyone has their own little house on the compound. It was everyone lives in the same space. You eat at the same table. There's hundreds of you. All the men work together. A day in the life looks something like this. The men go out to work forever and ever. So the compound living is the women's territory. And I remember women everywhere. And they were wonderful to me and the other kids. Thank God. I mean, I don't know what everyone's experience was, but mine was super positive. My mom was put in charge of the women at one of the compounds. And she ran it with love. You know, her memories were good and she has lifelong friends from it. But they were all scared of Stuart. They didn't see a lot of him. 
especially during the daytime, because while Stuart had all of his minions out working for him, barely sleeping, he was at home in his house in New Jersey with his wife, and I will tell you a little bit more about his crazy relationships. But he was at home, and he was sleeping all day and going out to eat, and he would come for the big Bible studies at night where he would gather everyone up after working and taking care of kids all day. He'd be well-rested, and he would run these Bible studies for hours into the wee-wee hours of night and early the next morning. If people fell asleep during these Bible studies in their chairs, they would be publicly humiliated. And in fact, my mom says that the group was basically run on public humiliation, guilt, and sleep deprivation. She said those were the ingredients to how he controlled them. They were so tired. This goes for the women and the men, and probably the children who are kept up and you know carted around to different Bible studies. Everyone was so just freaking exhausted that they didn't have the willpower to question or fight back, even when things were going sideways. And they went sideways pretty quickly, my mom says. She started realizing just how freaking crazy Stuart was early on, as did my dad. Here's the hitch, though. There's no one you can talk to about this. Your parents are already probably side-eyeing your choices, so you can't really complain to them. Your friends, your brothers and sisters, as they called each other in the cult, are all you know, potential spies, even though you're so close with them, you can't talk to each other about it, even if you're all thinking the same thing, which is probably this dude's batshit crazy. You can barely talk to your spouse about it because you're both choosing to be there, and there are probably some good things coming out of it. In my mom's case, she said it was the sense of community she felt. She was learning so much. She wanted to learn more about God and the Bible. And what Stuart's MO was, was to, to really work off of this verse in the Bible, Isaiah 1:18, that says, come now, let us reason together. Now it's a lovely verse. If you just hear it in the, you know, the Socratic circle, it's intended to be, let us reason together. Let us talk together. Let us live communally. Let us be a group and share our thoughts. But what he really meant, according to my mom, is that the Bible was all about reason and logic. No room for compassion, no room for forgiveness, absolutely no room for love. In fact, he used to mock the love chapter in Corinthians that you hear at weddings all of the time. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not boast. You know the rest if you know anything about any wedding you've ever been to. You've heard it. I've heard it. He used to mock that chapter and anything in the Bible that, that had to do with love. The irony of this is that if you believe in the New Testament, in the teachings of Jesus, and my mom really did, and my dad really did too, then it was all about love and it was all about forgiveness. But he, in a crafty way, would work around those and only point out the condemnation and the sin and the guilt and the repercussions and basically, you know, the the fire and brimstone approach that some churches can can adopt as a means by which to instill fear in their congregations. That was Stewart's basic principle: fear, intimidation, guilt, and of course, like I said, sleep deprivation. He felt that being persecuted was a badge of honor, so he would tell his group, his members, you know, he would refer to that, ver that verse in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted in God's name. Now, this is clever because they were all living in squalor and they had to ask for money for food and ask for a clothing allowance while Stuart was living the high life. And he would remind them that they are blessed because they're persecuted. Another form of persecution came 
by way of just social persecution. I mean, New York was a different place then. And my mom jokes today that they could never even afford, you know, a scrap of sidewalk in that same area. And they were living in these huge spaces down in the village. But um, they were persecuted by the people of the day who were looking at them and thinking, you guys are all zombies. And she used to be embarrassed because she she was thinking in her heart, and I'm going to remind you, they were in their early 20s, my parents. She was thinking, I want to do good in this world. I want to help people. And they were being looked at as brainless followers of a madman. And it turns out that it's very hard to accept that fact and leave. But leave they did. And I'll talk about how they left in another episode. In fact, um, speaking of persecution, the loft we lived in at one point was two doors down from the village voice. And my mom told me when I was talking to her recently, something I never knew is that the, the editors and writers of the village voice used to lean out of their windows and pour cold buckets of water on the Kobu members while they were witnessing to people on the street or while they were singing, because they'd go around and form singing groups in Washington Square Park and on the street. So the Village Voice, were they were uh, calling out the Kobu early on in not the nicest of ways, but, <clears throat> you know, I get it. Not so nice Village Voice, but we still love you. And my mom says she she would be told by Stuart, and they all would, that that was a blessing. They wanted people to hate them. That just meant they were doing God's work. This is all part of the cult mentality. You can see it on the outside. It's so hard to see it on the inside. And it's interesting how it carries throughout almost every cult you study. If you're persecuted, that's a good thing. If people hate you as the cult leader, let's think about L. Ron Hubbard who had to hide out at sea, that even gives you more reverence. People really buy into this. And you can even base it on the biblical stories where believers were persecuted. In Stewart's case, he did a lot of that. He largely recruited young people who were searching for the truth, and he said he was providing the truth. He called every other organized religion out there lukewarm or watered down, and he said he was the literal interpreter of the Bible. And as a reminder, I mentioned this last time, he told people he was the reincarnation of Elijah, the prophet in the Old Testament. So yeah, that's not wacky or anything. No prob, Stuart. He moved the group to Manhattan in the mid-70s, and it was kind of squalor conditions, but the women kept it nice. He himself had a wife who I mentioned earlier. He lived in Jersey with. Her name was Shirley, and he was 40-ish. Shirley was maybe 20. He rescued her, air quotes, rescued, rescued her from an orphanage where he was volunteering. No, she wasn't working there. She was an orphan, so she was well under age when he decided he wanted her for his wife. My mom kind of wonders if he was, in fact, a pedophile. He certainly was a madman, and he waited until girls came of age to legally do anything about it because both his first wife and his second wife were way, way, way younger than him. And his first wife in particular, Shirley, he used to force her to dress like a little girl. Now in this time period, it was all about the long skirts and the flowy blouses and, you know, the hippie look. And oh, I have the best pictures of my parents from this decade. They just look fantastic. And um, I wish my mom would have kept all those clothes because I want them now. But Shirley, Stewart's wife, she was forced to wear these very short dresses and skirts with petticoats under them, like poofing out. Think Shirley Temple. And she looked like a little girl all of the time. She was hardly ever allowed to speak. She had, I think, five kids with him, if I'm remembering that correctly. And ultimately, she left him later on and then... and. Nobody knew why or how or where she was, and it was interesting. My mom says Stuart just stood up one day in, in one of their big meetings and said, Shirley has taken my kids and gone, and or something like that. And my mom says it was like 
that was God and God's wife left and they had no freaking idea about what to do. They could not believe that it happened. And of course, who knows what abuse was going on? Who knows what was actually happening in that horrific home? But Shirley got away and there they sat. And so that got the wheels turning. Later on, Stuart married someone named Gail. I'm going to talk about her more in the next episode or two because she has a tragic ending, as many cult leaders' wives do, and he had a hand in it. And um, this is a story from a friend of my parents, who I believe, and I'm going to save that for next time. But I will tell you that I'm going to get into the Haiti orphanages as well, because I've got a lot of intel on that. That was another way that Stuart found to make money and launder money and really prey upon people's weaknesses again. And I will tell you this as a tease for next time. My mom was on the second mission to Haiti and Stuart Trail flew her there in the first plane he ever bought. When she came back from that trip, she got me and she left. We'll talk about that next time. Well, guys, that brings us to the end of episode two of Pink Shade. I'm so glad you came back for more. And if this is your first time tuning in, please subscribe and share. I'm just getting this podcast off the ground. I would love for you to join me in the Facebook group. Leave me a review on iTunes and tell me what you think, what you're loving, what you're not loving, what you want more of. And most of all, I just want to talk about everything we love to dish. So follow me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm mostly on Twitter, but if you want to just see pics of my kid, come on Instagram. Both handles are the same, at Erin Leah Martin. Find my recaps on realitytea.com and check out the Jenny McCarthy Show on channel 109 of Sirius XM Stars. I'm on there every week dishing about the housewives. Until next time, I'll see you in reality. 